1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today is a very special show. Today is our 100th episode of Next Steps Forward. I want to thank you, our listeners and viewers, for tuning in and getting us here. Just two days after the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks that claimed nearly 3,000 American lives, our guests today are U.S. Army veteran, Celia Martinez, and retired Marine Corps Staff Sergeant, Bryce Cherry Holmes. Saul is a Southern California native, former Army infantryman, and Purple Heart recipient. He enlisted in 2006. He lost both legs and suffered a traumatic brain injury in May 2007 when his vehicle was hit by a projectile improvised explosive device in Iraq. After leaving the military, Saul Martinez moved his family to Montana and graduated from Montana State University. In 2017, former President George W. Bush painted his portrait for his collection and book, Portraits of Courage, which include a series of paintings to bring visibility to our nation's service members and their stories. Saul Martinez is the Chief Program Officer of the Warriors and Quiet Waters Foundation, and he continues to serve as an active advocate for wounded and injured veterans and their welfare. Bryce Cherry Holmes was born in 1988 in Fort Worth, Texas. And Bryce, for the record, that really burns me because that's the year I graduated high school. He enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in 2007 and served faithfully for eight years until his retirement from active duty in 2015. He earned three Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medals and the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal. Bryce sustained an initial back injury during his first combat deployment. It was an injury that became worse over time, eventually resulting in surgery and paralysis from the chest down. Bryce lives in North Carolina with his wife of 11 years, Kaylin, and their two children, Brylin and Case. He currently serves as an ambassador for the national veteran-focused nonprofit, Soldier Strong. So, Martinez and Bryce Cherryholmes, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you
2: for having us.
0: Thanks so much for having us, Chris. It's an honor to be here for your 100th show. No, the honor
1: is mine. Uh, I'm proud to call both of you brothers, and so it truly is uh, an honor for me to have you here.
2: Well, I would be a much younger brother than since the whole right. high school thing. Yeah, thanks for that. You're welcome. Kicking, kicking the gut. Had to.
1: So Sunday was the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. What does 9-11 mean to each of you, and how did it change your lives?
2: Saul, I'm going to let you go first if that's all right. Yeah, that's
0: totally fine. Um uh thanks so much Chris and I know um a little bit of what 911 means to you uh but with uh what 11 means to me it's uh it was a a big time pivot point in my life. It was a seed that was planted. It was it was everything. Uh I was a junior in high school uh, when the towers were hit and uh, before that, it was a greater sense of a growing sense of, you know, not only pride in our country, but uh, growing up the way I did and everything that my family was doing and how they were thrive or, you know, trying to thrive and everything that this country does for Americans, for everybody else, it was a growing sense of pride. And it got to the point where it's like, I want to protect this. I want to do something to protect this. And then 9-11 happened. And from that point on, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And so 9-11 means, means so much to me um, just because of how big of a role not only did it play in my life, but in everybody's life that was affected that day. Um, and, and I still think back to it like it was yesterday, you know, like most of us do. I know exactly where I was. I remember the smells. I remember how I felt. I actually remember what I was wearing And, and it's, it's very few moments in life that, you know, stick out that way. And, you know, it's just, you know, tragedy is, is, is big that way. And it sticks with you, but it also fuels me. Um, I'm a big, uh, you know, I, I will never forget. I will never forget that day, nor will I ever forget anybody that was lost on that day, nor anybody that served on that day. That's what 9-11 means to me. Thank you. Bryce?
2: Um, I mean, absolutely. Oh, just to reiterate exactly what Saul said. I mean, I remember exactly where I was, you know, I, it's good to hear that he was only a junior in high school because I was in eighth grade when uh, the towers hit. And I remember them turning the news on. And I remember, you know, exactly like he said, the sound smells everything. I remember what I was wearing. I remember what the teachers were wearing. I remember the, the, the crazy things about it. It's one of those Uh, once in a lifetime, um, moments that you just, you just don't forget. And I remember the sense of pride I had, even in eighth grade, trying to look at the world as a whole and saying, Hey, wait a second. Uh, I see, I I see everyone in the country banding together, didn't matter race, religion, color, it nothing it, it we all banded together at that moment and that was something that that had stuck with me for my rest of my life because of that. so 9/11 was definitely a defining moment in my life um, as towards the military aspect as well because that was really the time where I was like I, I need to help. How can I help? What what's the best way for me to do it? So that's what it would mean to me.
1: You both touched on how America banded together, and that just reminded me of there's a small museum a town over for me. About five or six years ago, they had a display on uh, during the month of September, where there are portraits from across the entire country of how people painted things. The American flag. It was a barn. It was the side of their house. It was their roof. It was their tractor trailer, Uh, and that's. As terrible as that was, that was one of the positive things, I think, to come from that day from a unification perspective. So 9-11 had happened five years before you enlisted, and Bryce, it was seven years before you joined the Marines. You both talked about a sense of pride there a moment ago. Why did each of you choose military service, and what were your expectations when you signed those papers and took your oaths to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic and obey the orders of the President of the United States?
0: Uh, For me, it was, um, man. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was five years after. So I was out of high school for, hmm, I was out of high school for right at three years. Uh, and it was at that point, I wanted to join right after high school, like as soon as I graduated, but you know, I was overcome by events and honestly, a little bit of pushback from my family, which is, you know, I've, I've talked to them about that. Um, and having, you know, I had to kind of dismiss my, my, this crazy good, like big feeling to join them, join the military, um, in order to, you know, just go about life, you know, in, in Southern California. And I had, you know, I had a, a couple of different jobs and it was just, you know, the next day was the same as the last. And that that sense of service never went away, never. Every single day I thought about it like, oh, you know what, today should be the day I joined, or maybe I'll go next week or next month. And then slowly that became, okay, maybe someday. And uh, when it came down to it uh, in 2006, it was right after my 21st birthday. And that same, that big feeling hit again. It was it was like a thunderstruck moment where it was like, no, it's time. You know, I've I've watched the news, I've seen what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq or about to go on in Iraq at that point, you know, when I was graduating high school. So I watched the progression of the invasion and all of that and never went away. So 2006 came about and I said, it's time. It's finally time. So I answered that call because it was, I felt like that's where I was meant to be. And um, the reason why I chose military service is because I, it might sound a little silly, but I wanted to fight the bad guys. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to get some, You know, a little bit of restitution for for not only 9/11 but everything else with the global war on terror. It was like that's where I felt like I needed to be. Um, And you know, in a in a naive sense, I thought, all right, I'm a wrestler, I'm a football player, I'm a I'm a swimmer, I'm all these things, and I'm pretty I'm okay at these things, and maybe I can utilize those in my military service. Man, it wasn't until a lot later that I realized, okay. I could take some of those skills and apply them, but otherwise, <laughs> you know, I'm in the military and I'm gonna get resocialized, and I did. And you know, that's something hardly anybody ever talks about is the resocialization, resocialization aspect. And so that's that's why I chose military service because it was not only uh, a direct line to try to fight the bad guys, but it was all the other things like being part of a team again, like you know, being in the uh, like all of us standing on the same arrow going in the same direction um, and being able to fulfill that, that sense of not only purpose, but also pride and service uh, to our country. That's, that's why I chose military. Bryce.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. um uh, I mean, the, I reiterate everything you just said, Saul, I mean, the exact same thing for me. I mean, I joined in, in uh, July, let me think, July, I think it was 23rd, 2007. So, you know, it's just, just before the six-year anniversary, I believe, and graduated boot camp October 19th. The biggest reason why I joined was uh, during that time in my life, I didn't have anything really giving me a drive or a push. Everything kind of came easy. And I was just one day after the next, same thing. And, uh, in 2000 and, um, 2006, I lost my grandmother. My mom's my maternal grandmother. And, uh, and she, before she passed, she said, you know, I want you to join the military. You really should, you should make a career out of it. And I didn't, I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to be a Marine since, uh, I almost can remember the exact date. Cause it was my birthday when I turned nine. Uh, and I got a book about them, but it was, uh, it was like, okay, well, you know, grandma wanted me to do this. Uh, I'm i I'm gonna make sure this happens. So, you know, oddly enough though, like, and I went to the army first, you know, nothing against them. So well, it's the same fight, different uniform. Right. Um, I don't wear the mint chocolate chip cookies though. Those, those cam camis, um, but uh, after that, I went to the Coast Guard right? and uh, had some medical things going on with, because of my ADHD, so I had a lot of paperwork I had to get. But then from Coast Guard, went to the Navy. Navy was like, nope, you didn't give us all the documents. And then randomly, I met a Marine while I was working at my security job and uh, security guard job. And he, uh, he was like, call this guy and gave this guy a call, and I was gone. I mean, at boot camp within two weeks. And, uh, you know, funny enough, you mentioned, uh, Chris, my wife and I have been married since yeah, no, November 26, 2009. Um, and she, uh, I, I called her that night, the day I was leaving. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm joining the Marine Corps. She's like, why would you do a stupid thing like that? And I said, just to make a better life for you and our future family we weren't dating at the time, nothing. Right. Like we were just really good friends and that's what she said. So, um, but back to, you know, what it means to support and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic, and obey the orders of the president of the United States and all officers appointed over us. Right. Like that right there. Wasn't as challenging, honestly, as I thought it would be. Um, when I first heard that, I was, okay, so I just got to shut up and color. It's not hard to do. As a Marine, it's a little more difficult than, than Saul because we eat crayons. Um, so I had to use, you know, the, 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 the marker. Um, so I didn't, I didn't eat my writing material. But that's, you know, that's kind of what it all meant to me. And that's how it all played out.
1: And Bryce, you had multiple deployments. How did you end up being deployed multiple times?
2: Uh, That's a a pretty simple and easy question to answer, honestly. Um, The first deployment to Iraq, I deployed um, August 11, 2008, and I volunteered for that deployment Um, and uh, went to Iraq. And uh, then it came time to, hey, either go home or, you know, request to stay and um, uh, stay for longer. Like the Army does normally what, it, correct me <laughs> from wrong So well, it's normally about a nine to 12 month deployments, right? Typically. Yeah, yeah. typically. Mm-hmm. And in the Marine Corps, it's usually about a, a six to eight month deployment, de- depending on your unit. Um, so mine was supposed to be a six month and I decided I was going to stay longer. And, uh, when, when I decided to stay longer, I got moved to a different, uh, job because the job I was filling at the time was going to be filled with other individuals that were already coming in. So they kind of just put you where they want you. But, um, because I stayed later, that was how I sustained my initial injury and, and then follow on injuries after that. And then. I got back August, uh, 13th, 2009 and wife and I got married it was the best day of my life. Besides when my kids were born. Um, and, and it was funny cause we had our wedding planned, uh, for May, of May, May 21st of 2010, everything paid for whole nine yards. And uh Marine Corps said, Nope. Uh, you gotta So well, I'm sure you're familiar with this, like, Army's probably the same way I think, where it's like, no, if you're not married, you you got to live in the barracks, and you're like, well, how do I know what my pet peeves are? I know what mine are, but like, how do I know what hers are? Are we even gonna get along? Like, there's your attrition rate, right, for divorce in the, in the military. Just saying. So hopefully, some uh, maybe some general officers are gonna listen to this and uh, make some changes. But. I told him I didn't want BAH. I didn't care. I could afford it on my own. We lived out in town, whatever. But uh, it was, it was uh, comical to me because I got by name requested in 2010 to leave on another deployment down to Central and South America to do humanitarian aid. And uh, I, I accepted it. <laughs> and knowing that I was leaving a month after I was getting married, after our wedding. And I initially told my wife, I couldn't do anything about it. I have to go. It was about like a year later when I finally was like, yeah, I actually had a choice, but I, I wanted to deploy. It's good for promotions. It's good for military service, good for experience. And, um, got back from that deployment in November, 2010 and PCS and, uh, so permanent change of station. I changed from Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where I'm currently located at to Camp Pendleton, California. And uh, 2012 came up. I was working at First Marine Division Headquarters, uh, G4 at the staff. And uh, I got asked again, hey, do you want to deploy? My wife was pregnant at the time with our daughter. And they said, you don't have to. You know, you have a daughter on the way, you can stay here. And I was like, nah, she'll be born beforehand. We're good. Like, I'll get to see her for a little bit. All's all's good. And uh, so, yeah, I left when she was uh, three months old in 2012. She was born in October, and I left in January of 2012. I left. She could fit, you know, head and butt on my elbow. I went to Afghanistan and ended up being... Um, I guess you could say I ended up being pretty important to the staff that was there at the time, but yeah, I went there and they asked me to stay longer also on that one. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, I got told no by the, the now, uh, commandant of the Marine Corps. So it was all right. That was a good time. That's how I ended up getting deployed multiple times. I just kept saying yes.
1: <laughs> Call you a hurt locker from now on. Right. So well, you were not in the army long before being deployed to Iraq, but that would make sense for an in- infantryman when the country was in the midst of a pretty hot war. Take us through how you're being trained and mentally prepared in the U.S. for combat and what your time in Iraq was like up to the day you were injured.
0: Sure, no problem. Um, you know, that's... that that short story actually starts in basic and in basic training. Um, At that time, uh, when I, when I first enlisted in 2006, you know, IEDs were crazy on the rise and up until that point, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a, actually a pretty steep trajectory in an upward motion of not only the, the frequency of IED attacks, but also uh, the type of IEDs. They were getting more advanced. They were getting, And by advance, I mean, I mean, they were getting their tactics were getting a little more complex because the the enemies, the enemies that were around, they were they were watching us or they were watching U.S. service members and they were watching units move. They were watching even, uh, you know, brigade size elements come in and out of country. They were watching everything and they they were very quick to adapt. Um, You know, one example of that. So actually, I'll, I'll get to that. But in basic, you know, that's that was the main that was probably the main source of training was IED 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 and everything that comes with IEDs is how to react to IEDs how to spot IEDs how to identify you know an area where IEDs could be like danger areas you know along with all the regular infantryman stuff you know small unit maneuvering you know small unit tactics clearing houses all that good stuff uh but the man a, a big focus was ieds and then that carried on after basic once i got to my unit which um, it was it was just more of the same just constant uh briefings and constant trainings on ieds and then that continued all the way into getting to country um so when i deployed in 2000 when i deployed to iraq in uh march of 2007 it was uh again a lot of the same more training obviously more Uh, movement tactics and more, uh, I mean, yeah, more unit-based, you know, functions. But uh, once we got to country, then we got the most up-to-date information. And we had heard a little bit about EFPs before we got to country. But once we got there, that's all it was about. And that was because of the region of Iraq that we were in, which is about, you know, 18 miles southeast of Baghdad, which is uh, territory and EFPs are explos- explosively formed penetrators or projectiles depending on who you ask but uh, what EFPs are are essentially a, a cylinder packed with explosives and capped with a detonator on one side and then the other side is capped with a copper plate and that copper plate is bold and um, when that detonation, when it detonates that copper plate turns into a giant hot bullet that shreds through anything and when I mean through anything, it shred through our 400-pound Humvee doors like nothing, and it actually blew two of them off. Uh, but I'll I'll get to that as well. Um, so EFPs uh, they can be they can be arranged in in a lot of different ways, but the main mode and the one that was most effective was they camouflage them. They they set them you know anywhere from one charge to you know I think the biggest array we found was uh, when we were in country was like eight to 10 charges uh you know eight to 10 of those cylinders and they vary in diameter as well you know the, the obviously the larger the diameter the bigger the bullet and uh when we were there that's that that was the main so, that was the main point of training was was IEDs and IED awareness um and then to you know everything about being mentally prepared you know, I think that goes back to mo- now, now in hindsight, I think that goes back to most anything. Like when we practice, we, we can't lose. Um, And when we practice where it's just like another repetition. Um, And I don't know if there's any Kobe fans around, but you know, Kobe used to say, you know, if I'm in a championship game, it's just another, it's just another time that I'm doing something that I did thousands of times before. And for us, it was a lot, it was a lot of the same. It was going on our mission. It was and I was on my my brigade commander's command security detachment but it was it was going on a mission and it was like okay we know what to expect we know what to look for we know how to react and that was that was helpful so when when i think when people i think people sometimes lose that distinction between being mentally prepared and practice to me they're pretty similar to me they're when people practice i don't know if they actually realize that they are mentally preparing or if they're just saying, oh, I got to practice this move so I could get my motor skill, my motor functions and my my fine tuning down. Like uh, to me, they're they're very similar. To, to me, they're the same similar species. Um, and so that's what it was like being mentally prepared. Uh, now, in, in during the time in Iraq, it was, man, it was just repetition. Um, our our team, you know, again, being on my brigade commanders, command security detachment, it, it was day in and day out of uh, the same thing. The, uh, the colonel had to go places. We had to get him there, and we had to get him there safely. And every day it was somewhere different, and that actually spoke to, you know, his leadership at the time was he needed to be with his units. He needed to go see his battalion commanders. He needed to go see even his, you know, platoon size elements that were out on cops. Like, it, it was a thing. He wanted to be around and go all around the AO the area of operation in order to see what was going on, make sure his soldiers were being taken care of and make sure he can take care of them. If there was something he could do to take care of them. Um, So it was, it was repetition each day, every day. And our, our teams were pretty tight and yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a snapshot of what it was like training leading up to and also, you know, being mentally prepared for while we're there repetition and practice. So would
1: you share what you remember and what you're comfortable sharing about the day you were injured and the days and weeks
0: immediately after sure um and i'll try to keep it a little short but uh on may 8th 2007 it was you know going back to efps we were about 20 minutes into the mission that day and boom um yeah, the the after the investigation the you know the charge that hit or the ied that hit us um they estimate it was anywhere between six to eight charges of, of EFPs in that one array. And and before I get, before I talk about like the actual, you know, impact or the detonation, it's uh, the main mode, the most effective mode of, of EFP strikes is encasing them in, you know, you know, that spray foam that you use for installation or insulation. So the main mode was putting all of these charges in spray foam and then shaping it in a way that it looks like a rock. And then once you got it shape like a rock, you paint it to look like a rock. Once you paint it to look like a rock, then you put local vegetation on there and then you put dirt on it. And then you, it's, it's nearly impossible to see those things even when you're looking for them. And so, um, you know, to this day, and then obviously, we'll talk about that a little later too, but, um, I was, up on the, I was up on the turret in, my, in our Humvee, we were in the lead vehicle, and the EFP, the, it hit us, it hit us hard. And I have, I have the curse and the blessing of remembering everything from blast to getting medevaced to the green zone in Baghdad. And, you know, again, I'll try to keep it short, but the, what happened immediately was catastrophe and chaos. It was, and I don't know how, how descriptive I can be, um, as much as you want. Is that okay? All right. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know I, it, how, how's cursing on your, uh, on your podcast, Chris or satellites. All good. Sounds good. All right. So inside of the Humvee, Humvee was a fucking mess is what I'll say. And it was a mess because my two buddies, Kyle Little and Blake Stevens were killed instantly. And, you know, out of respect for their families, I won't talk about what their remains look like. Um, that's why I just just know it was a fucking mess. And amongst that mess was what looked like used to be two legs on me. And it, it was, you know, one of them kind of looked like spaghetti, you know, with with everything else kind of attached still, like the tendon, like the cartilage, like like bone and then the other one like you could still kind of tell it was a leg it was just mangled all to shit um and you know the our awesome team uh they everybody did their jobs that day everybody did their jobs well you know our 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 team leader uh captain hemmon he called in the nine line immediately and then my squad leader uh sergeant mike henderson and and then well, actually, that's a different topic, too. But anyway, my, my squad leader, Mike Henderson, and our medic, uh, Stephanie McCauley, came right to my aid. They thought everybody in the vehicle was dead. And, and talk about women in combat, that's Stephanie McCauley. And, my, you know, I say, I say it as much as I can, whenever I can. My, my life was saved by a woman in combat. And so, when, if, if or, and when people want to have that conversation with me, I'm, I'm more than happy to have that because man, when you see what she, how she performed and what she did, she didn't even skip a beat. So again, that's a, that could be its own podcast itself. And uh, so that that's what happened immediately. Uh, They pulled me out, Uh, you know, lots of things in between, you know, obviously Stephanie and Mike both did their jobs. Just, oh man, just exceeded the standard. They, they are responsible for getting me off the battlefield as, as, as is the rest of the team. But, And, you know, I thought I was going to die right there. That was, that was my first visit, if you will, to getting a peek at the afterlife. And when, um, when I had that thought, it was, you know, it was was kind of fleeting because I lost a lot of blood. I shouldn't have, I I honestly shouldn't have been alive medically and logically I shouldn't have been alive at that point. Uh, I had lost too much blood already. And once they got me out, got me stable, the bird came about 24 minutes later. You know, it was a hot LZ. Um, they got in. And here's here's one more thing I want to say about Stephanie is she was maybe 120 pounds at the time. And it was her and Mike Henderson. Both of them carried my big ass about 100 meters to the LZ. You know, just imagine little Stephanie McCauley. And she's not that little, but again, she's. At that time, I was about 250 pounds and, you know, given my injuries, the blood I lost, the tissue I lost, I was maybe still about 220, but her and one other dude carried me that far. I mean, I don't know how many ladies are around that can do that, Um, especially on the battlefield. So um, that's what happened. And full kit. And full kit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's what happened immediately. And then the days that happened after I was in an induced coma for about two weeks so I have, I have an idea, I have hallucinations, I have some experiences that I've, that I've confirmed and validated um, you know, in the couple of weeks after, but I woke up to my wife uh, at Walter Reed uh, National, or Walter Reed Medical Center in, uh, in DC. And then from there, then it was, then the work started. Then it was like, all right, got no legs, that's new. Um, but damn it, if I didn't have, if I didn't have my support system around me, I don't know how it would have played out from then. And so I woke up to my wife. I also woke up to my mom and dad and my brother. Mm -hmm. So it was like, all right, if I'm here, they're here. That means I'm, I'm still here because along the way, man, I died twice. I I flatlined twice. I flatlined once in Baghdad and I flatlined once in launch Germany on the way. So that, that's, that's kind of a, a peak of what it was like for immediately, a few days after, and then a couple weeks after. And after that, it's just been, it's just been constant work.
1: It's a hell of a peak. Thank you for sharing that with us.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not done yeah, with it yet, thank so. thank you very
2: much, man. Thank you.
1: That's crazy. So you talk about the work beginning. After about a year of rehab, you remained on active duty and took on the role of a warrior transition unit squad leader for another two years. There you're helping soldiers, Marines, and sailors with conditions and experiences similar to your own transition out of the military must have been rewarding, but it also must have taken a heavy toll on you physically and emotionally, especially as a double amputee with a TBI. Why were you motivated to take on that responsibility and what was that experience like?
0: Thanks for asking that, Chris. Um, That's that's a lot to unpack there because… so let's start, let's start with what motivated me. Uh, what motivated me was I didn't feel like I was done in the army yet. Um, it was pretty soon after I enlisted, like very soon after it was on my first deployment and I was like, okay, I'm not done yet. And so that was piece number one. Um, piece number two was doing the rehab and learning to walk again on prosthetics. Anyway, it was the challenge to say the least. It's, it's getting used to a new anatomy. It's getting used to a new center of gravity even. And that's something, you know, a lot of people don't really talk about when it comes to amputees is how important your center of gravity is. And it was, you know, identity was, was huge. And at that time, the Army pretty much was my identity. And when I thought I wasn't done, This opportunity came up and, you know, could be because I was a soldier in the warrior transition unit uh, going through my care, going through my rehab, all my surgeries, um, you know, and obviously they didn't stop then. They still continue to this day, but going through all of that myself, I realized, okay, if I'm doing this and I'm doing okay at it, I have a good support system. I have an awesome wife who stayed with me, man. I want to try to get other dudes and gals to this level. Like I want to, I want to let them know, like, not only is it okay not to be okay but you know with incremental change and incremental effort like it's whatever you want to do is possible and you got to use what you got and what we had at that time was each other and so i thought it was a i thought it was a pretty good fit for me to not only go through my own rehab i was walking okay at the time and by okay i mean the pain was still crazy like the my fits were my my socket fits were still All over the map because my volume change you know with most amputees their volume change doesn't really stop until probably five or six years after um because your body's trying to figure out what to do with it and um when it comes to you know why i wanted to take on that responsibility it's it's just that it's because i felt like it was my responsibility and growing up and even to this day it took me a long time to realize but it's like i'm pretty sure i'm just a helper I'm pretty sure i'm just an empath that man and and believe me when i say this i wish there was there are times that i wish i didn't feel what somebody was feeling like after a tragedy or after like a hard time or i mean just name the situation there are times where i wish i didn't feel what they were feeling but that's just who i've been and i can look at and i could track that back all the way to childhood where it's like if a kid was having a tough time or didn't have enough to eat at home Man, I felt that shit, and then the next day I would try to bring them some lunch. So it's like s- things like that, and then when you, when I'm looking at other amputees or other people who are traumatically wounded, and and even injured or ill, whatever that looked like, I felt like that was my place. Like that's that's um, it might sound too simple, but that's that's just where I felt like I needed to be, and the opportunity was there. Um, and it being a sim, and all of their situations being similar to my own was just a plus because. Then I can actually show by example, like, oh, so going downstairs fucking sucks. I, I don't ever want to do that. It's scary. I don't want to do that shit. And it's like, okay, cool. You don't have to right now. I'm gonna go ahead and trek down these stairs if you want to try and if you want to learn. I'm here to teach you, man. Like it's good. And that was just a plus on the side of, on on the outside of being a a squad leader in the unit itself. Like then I had all the army stuff to deal with. We were still soldiers. And that was really cool to let them know, like, dude, you're still a fucking soldier. Don't forget that. I don't care. Like, I care that you're missing three limbs, but don't forget, you're still active duty, bro. And you're a fucking tough guy. So let's do this. Like, let's put the work in. So uh, all of that combined, um, it was, you know, and it did take a heavy toll because there was because of all that. It was almost like a distraction from me taking care of my own mental health, which I honestly neglected. Uh, all the way up until probably 2013. And it was a good distraction. I learned a lot. But then afterwards, I was stuck with myself. And I didn't spend any of that time figuring out who I was. So there was a downside. You know, like, the, like everything, there's usually a downside. And that was it for me. Is it took me a long time to try to find my identity, find my purpose, and, and find who I was. Well,
1: you've certainly found it now. Thank you. Bryce, did the Marine Corps find I- roles? Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
2: Sorry, can I just comment? So I I completely wholeheartedly like you hit it nail on the head, brother, like like military member, veteran to veteran, like you'll get this, like I love you. Like like come here, like come in for a hug, man. Like you hit it right on the head. When I was at you're right, right. When I was at Wounded Warrior Uh, Battalion West when I was getting medically retired like that was the same I wasn't a squad leader or anything I was just general population guy getting medically retired but like I told everyone that was there that didn't matter who they were from the major that was there to the master gunnery sergeant E9 that was there like you're still a marine it doesn't matter and I was a staff sergeant at the time like I'm like you're still a marine you still got to make sure you shave you still got to make sure you're doing everything you need to do in order to comply. Like, this isn't an escape place, you know, like you don't get to just ease on by, like not nah, do what you're supposed to do. I remember vividly we had, a, I won't say his name, but we had a Lance Corporal that was there who got hurt right after boot camp. Uh, won't go into his details on how, but had a severe TBI. But all this kid wanted to do was get into the fleet Marine Corps. That's it. It's all he wanted to do. And we had, and he wanted to go infantry and we had infantry guys there and they would just blow him off. Like, "Ah, go away, get lost. And it's like, hell no. Like you're a Sergeant, you're, you're, you're a staff Sergeant, you're a corporal, you know, do your job, teach this kid, like train him. He wants to get back in the fleet. He don't want to get retired. He wants to push and try. Do your job and train him now. That way he's fit for service when he gets there. He's already ahead of the peers. But, like, man, you hit it on the head. Like, I really appreciate what you did. That's amazing.
0: Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate you, man.
2: Yeah, bro. Love you.
1: Well, I always pride, you know, coming for the air hug, I love it. I I always pride this show on being a show first. And we just have a couple that just occurred here. First of all, Sewell, I think you broke the record for the number of F-bombs dropped during my show which is all good, brother. Um, you both have blown the hell oh, out, of my, I out of my Q&A script. I'm coming back to you next, so you got a chance. So, you know, yes, I've got this list of Q&A questions here, and I'll touch on some, but let's talk about what's important to both of you as we go through this conversation, just make it more preform. But before we do that, you know, so we talked about your transition. Um, Bryce, how about you? You know, your, your back injury got worse and worse. Did the Marine Corps help find yeah. – a new role or roles for you as that deteriorated?
2: No, actually. Um, so after I had, I ended up having the, you know, four level spinal fusion from L3 to S1. And it was uh, considered a failed fusion that was due to injuries I sustained while in Iraq, on ship, and in Afghanistan. Um, but the first one was in Iraq and uh I dealt with that pain for a long time i was young dumb and full of cum i mean that was the way i tell everybody that so go ahead laugh so well i see you doing it bro it's good just let it go just let it go uh but it was it, it it fucking sucked i mean it was it was one of those things that it was just like once the surgery happened and i woke up and i'm like i i'm done like i was in more pain than what i was there was a 50 50 chance Fifty percent chance that'd be better. Fifty percent chance that'd be fucking worse. I was I was fucking worse. Just sucked. Um, my woke up to my wife crying. I, I was crying. I was like, I'm done. I had uh, at the time, uh, I believe it was. Um, well, I had Colonel Hey ha- Colonel Hagen was my my my. Uh, I guess you'd call him my OIC, if you will, my, he was, he was the one that I reported to at that time. Um, he came in, talked to me for a while. And then the general officer at the time for first Marine division came in and talked to me and I can't remember his name right now. I want to say it was Nicholson, but uh, he came in he's like, we can still, you know, you can still do some things. There's still things you can do. I started crying in front of the general officer and in the Colonel, like, no, there's not like, I know that, I I know the limits and inside the military, how it went. Like if I didn't get promoted to X rank, I couldn't stay in for how long. And then they started changing those, those timeframes. So yeah, I could have stayed in and maybe found a spot like Saul did, but I would have eventually just been let go. So at that point I had to think about my family and it was, well, do I, Do I continue to do everything I've been doing the last, you know, seven years, six years and pouring my entire heart, soul and body into the core? Like that was that 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 was everything. It took me a lot of years to, to actually understand that all I did was give everything I had to them. And I actually neglected my family because of that. And I've tried to change those ways and make major changes in my life because of I realized it, um, but no, they didn't find me one. And, and in all reality, once Colonel Hagen left, um, he's is such a great man, Colonel Robert Hagen. He was, a, he's, he's phenomenal. Um, he gave me the top block on what's called the, we call it the Christmas tree on the fitness report. And it was before I picked up staff sergeant. He's like the best sergeant I've worked with in 25 years promote now this marine will change our course future shape and change our course future like but that was still while still i was recovering from surgery like he left we got a new colonel i won't mention his name just out of respect for the rank that's all not the man um but that colonel didn't like me all he know me as like i said in the beginning like saul you know you can call me bryce you can call me cherry you can call me wheelchair asshole i don't give a fuck like you can call me the guy that's ugly. I, it doesn't bother me. I'm all good with it, right? Um, or you can call me the guy that never quits, right? Like never quits. Um, it it's uh that's, it's just he all he saw was broke cherry, if you will. He didn't know he didn't know the the other part of me. I still worked the same. I still had the same work ethic. I mean, I had more jobs, more tasks because we lost people. To do do you know them having to go to a different unit or whatnot. But uh he ended up saying like, nah, like send him to Wounded Warrior Battalion West, let him get just get out. Which hindsight, right? Like if you look at it from his perspective, he's like let let the let the Marine focus on on just getting out. And I understood it, but no, they didn't give me a chance like they did for you, Saul. However, I did pick up a role if you will a um what's the right word verbiage here uh it wasn't a legitimate role it was just a role that i fulfilled by doing the things i just spoke about like no like the kid wants to stay in let's teach him so like i would go over like you know small unit leadership tactics with them right like going over squad tactics going over fire team tactics everything in between and i'm not i'm not infantry i'm logistics so, but they say every Marine's a rifleman. I know a little bit, but I would do that type of stuff. They didn't. They they actually took me from my position that I was doing phenomenally at. But yeah, each of you volunteered. Which, Sorry, go ahead. No, I just said just that. That that part really hurt me, um, because when I read you know a little bit about Saul before this before this podcast, I was like, man, like. I wish that I would have had that chance. Cause just like how he said it, like I'm an, I'm an, I'm an empath. Like I feel, I feel everyone's pain. I see it all the time. And, and I'm one of those ones and I'm sure just listening to 15, 20 minutes of Saul, you know, speaking total, I guess um, maybe 30, but like he's the same way. Like we, we'd give each other or anyone else a shirt off our backs. So, I mean, I mean, I'd offer Saul my legs, but they don't work. So I don't know what the fuck he would do with them. He could just hold on to them. But I mean, I think they still work. You just got a, you got a good spinal cord. You'll be good, man. Just (laughs) we'll, we'll rig it up with some duct tape and some zip ties, some paracord, five fifty cord. You know what I mean? Like we're good. Yeah. All I, right, Chris, I sorry.
0: See, I can see the people listening to this just cringe a
2: little bit. Like, <laughs> did I laugh? Well, I mean, Am I allowed to yeah, laugh? No, no, they can't. You know, you can't make fun of the disabled. So, well, we can't even stand up for ourselves. <laughs> this is some fucking bullshit. Like, and if and if they don't laugh, that's something I just I won't stand for it. If they don't laugh, this is this is this is crap. I mean, I go into a store, I wheel in there, and they're like can I help you? And I say, no, I'm a glorified shopping cart. I got it. Like I'm good. I'll just put it on my lap. Yeah. Well, it's heavy. I don't feel it. So.
1: <laughs> More first, <we're> just <laughs> shattered there with the jokes. And and yeah, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sure my executive sorry. Producers sorry. are going to call me. No, no, no. It's, 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 it puts a little levity to the conversation. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Y- you know, and I want to touch for both of you here. We've got about, I don't know, seven, six or seven minutes left. Bryce, you just mentioned giving so the shirt off your back. Yeah. Bo- both of you volunteered to serve our nation and defend our freedoms and liberties. Both of you were injured in the line of duty or because of your service. Yet you both continue to give back. Right. You know, especially for you, Bryce, you were just talking about how you got shafted by the system. Right. You know, you guys, you guys are just wired just to give back what's in it for you like how why do you enjoy it so much
2: because it's our fellow fellow brothers and sisters that's the reason why in my opinion i mean you you see you see your family your extended family struggling and it it regardless i guess extended family or not but you see your extended family struggling and and you just want to help how can i help what can i do what's the next thing what how can we go forward how can i how can i fix this. It's also, a, it's actually, um, it's a, it's a medical kind of thing too, from a male perspective, we want control. We want to be able to control it. And so, so when we see it, it at, happening to us ourselves, we neglect ourselves, like Saul said as well, I wholeheartedly neglect everything, but like, I'll put everything I have into helping someone else, because I feel that's the best way to, give back and i think that's really what the lord even though this happened to me like I, that's that's his that's that's his path he chose now for me is to do this to 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 do my best to to be an advocate and and to help those that that truly need it and want the help so that's that's my way i'll let I'll finish it up
0: uh, i appreciate you saying that brace um So, man, I mean, there's a lot of things to say there, Chris. And um, honestly, I, you know, that, I think that answer has changed over time. And I think that's, I think that also signals growth over time is like, if you're dead set on something for however long until, you know, something or someone changes your mind I think that's growth, but I think if you are, I think if you're closed off to hearing a new perspective or listening to a different perspective, even if it's, you know, what I'm trying to say is I think now in this point in time, it just feels like my purpose because it's what I can give. And it's what I have to give is, The knowledge or the experience or the habits even, or, or even the disciplines that I've developed over time because of my, because of my wounds and because of the things I've had to do day in and day out because of them. And for a long time, I didn't realize I was doing any of that for a long time. I didn't realize that's why I say, you know, people maybe don't realize when they're practicing, they're, they're preparing mentally. And so I didn't realize that all these years, I thought I was putting my legs on every day because I should. I thought I was trying to get better at walking because I should. And then my wife got, and then, and then my son came. And then I was like, okay, I got no choice but to get good at walking now because I got to be able to keep up with this little guy. And, and, you know, and for you, Cherry, you know, it's, it was probably like getting better at, you know, getting mobile and getting in and out of your vehicle and loading up your chair, you know, all those things.
2: And. 100%.
0: So, so why, why, so I guess the answer, Chris, is why is just because I feel like I should, it's not doing anybody any good by keeping all of that in here. And I also truly believe like giving and kindness and all of those adjectives in that realm, you know, I give them and give them until I can't anymore. And I don't really like that word. I can't, you know, or that (laughs) phrase, I give and give until I can't. And that's, At some point, the onus has to be put back on the person that you're trying to help or the group that you're trying to help. Agreed. And so so for that, I will say, you know, to anyone listening is everybody can help you as much as they can, but ultimately you have to help yourself as well. And if you're not doing that, eventually those people that are trying to help you thrive, those people that are trying to help support you, eventually they're going to fizzle out. Maybe a few will stick around and touch here, touch and go here and there, but man, it starts with you. And so, uh, why do I give? Because it's just, I just feel like it's who I am, Chris. And I feel like if we made everybody better, the, the whole world, the, the country would be better. If we were just like lifting everybody up instead of being focused on trying to tear everybody down, like haters will hate, you know, that is a fact of life. You know, there's gravity, there's time, time will never stop moving. Gravity will never cease and haters will always find a way to hate. So, right.
2: brothers, I love you both. Chris, I mean that. this is volume one. We need a volume two with me and Saul.
1: There will be a volume two, if not three. We're out All of right. time. Thank you both for being here. An honor and a pleasure. Again, brothers, Thank I love you, you both. You. Thanks for the work you continue to do. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you same time, same place. Until then, keep taking your next steps forward.